We have a long and dramatic scripture this morning that Matthew will um, speak to us on. I'll read a portion of that. Um, chapter 3 from Exodus, verses 1 through 15. That's not quite right. I didn't get the... Matthew, what's the actual scripture I'm reading here? I'm starting with verse 3. It's chapter... Okay, okay. My numbers here aren't quite right. Okay, 3, 1 to 15 uh, from Exodus. It begins when Moses was tending his flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from the bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. Why this bush does not burn up? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out from the land in a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you'll worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. Good morning. The writer A.W. Tozer said this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about that. Wow, is that right? Is Tozer right? Is what comes into our minds when we think about God really the most important thing to us? Say, for example, we had this incredibly powerful app on our phones, and, and each of us was able to, to take out our phone, and we were able to kind of place that, that near our head, and that phone could extract the answer that comes to that question. Not the answer that you think you should say, not the Sunday school answer, but the real answer, what you really think. And then we could all hold that, 
that phone up and we could show whatever images and whatever words came to our mind. Tozer says that's the most important thing about us. Because Tozer believes if we, can, if we were to be able to somehow extract that answer, then, then we'd be able to predict the spiritual future of that person. In other words, what you think about God, what, you, what comes to your mind when you are asked that question, will shape the destiny of your life. So maybe, maybe most of us are okay with that. But let me ask you another question. What if the answer that comes to our minds about who God is is wrong? What if the answer that comes to our minds when we think about God is more of a reflection of us and who we are than who God is? In his book, God Has a Name, John Mark Comer tells about a conversation he has with with Scott McKnight. Scott McKnight's a pretty well-known New Testament professor. And for years in McKnight's class, he'd start his class with two surveys. And the first survey was a set of questions that asked the student, what do you like? What do you dislike? What do you believe? And so on. And then McKnight would hand the students a second survey, and it would ask the same set of questions, but about Jesus. And it would say, what is Jesus like? What does Jesus dislike? What does Jesus believe? And so on. Guess what? According to McKnight, 90% of the times, the answer was, were exactly the same, which is amazing, right? It turns out Jesus likes and dislikes and believes the same things we like and dislike and believe, which is convenient, but probably not true. I think there's a saying, I think I've said this before, that I think sums up well what's happening. God created man in his image, and since since then, man has never stopped returning the favor. How do you know that? How do you know? How do we know that image in our mind is actually a creation of our own? Well, Comer writes this. Here's how you know if you've created created God in your own image. He agrees with you on everything. He hates all the people you hate. He voted for the person you voted for. If you're Republican, so is he. If you're a Democrat, she is too. If you're, pa- if you're passionate about, then God is passionate about. If you're open and elastic about sexuality, so is he. And above all, he's tame. You never get mad at him or blown away or scared by him because he's controllable. And of course, Comer says, he's a figment of your imagination. We are all, let's just be honest, we are all guilty of this to some degree. We are all guilty to craft an image of God that is more a reflection about who we are than who God is. And here's my invitation for you today and really beyond. Here's, I think, our work today. Our work today is to ask the question that Moses asked to God, which is, what are you like? It's a really interesting question. See, in our passage for today, Moses asked God for his name. And when when Moses asked God for his name, he's not asking for a label. He's not asking for something that you would write on a name tag. No, what what, what Moses is asking and what he's saying is, who are you? Like, what's your character? What is your power? And let me give you a warning for today, but just in general. And I experienced this this week. If you enter into this question honestly, if you really allow God to reveal God's self to you, I think it will be exhilarating. Because what is more interesting than than just starting to have the lid opened up and get glimpses of the most powerful being in the universe? I don't think there's anything more interesting than that. But it can also be humbling and scary because you are opening yourself up to encountering 
a God not of your head, not a constructed in your head, but the God of the Bible. And when you do that, you're going to discover inevitably that God is different than you imagined. And let's be honest, it, it, is, it is scary to have our comfortable and safe images of God challenged. We as Comer writes, we want to have control over God, whether we realize it or not. But here's why I think you should do it. Here's why I think it's worth it. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter what you or I think about God because God is who God is, okay? So that doesn't change anything. I, think, I know that's kind of like obvious, but I think we just need to remind ourselves, what I think about God does not change who God is, okay? But two, and more positively, when we do the creating, we end up with a God who is small. We end up with a God who's not very compelling. We end up with a God who cannot be trusted. We end up with a God who does not have the power to transform us because we end up with a God who ultimately is not worthy of our worship because that God is like us, okay? But when we, like Moses, ask the question, what are you like? Reveal to us what you're like. We end up with a God who is so much bigger, so much more intimate, so much more holy, so much more loving, so much more compelling, and so much more worthy of our worship than we could ever imagine. So what's this God like? There is a lot here, more than I can do justice to, but here's a start. Here's two things I want us to see in this passage that we learn about who God is. God is holy and God is relational. Holy and relational. Let's start with holy. Our passage picks up. It's a very pastoral, it's a very idyllic scene. Uh, In my mind, Moses is out tending sheep on the far side of the wilderness, Mount Horeb. Uh, That is another name for Mount Sinai. We'll be back here uh, at some point in our story. So, So livestock, wilderness, and mountains. Like this is my kind of place. Uh, Moses, we saw last week, Moses, uh, he was, his, his life got off to a wild start. But things have settled down. He's gotten married. He's had a couple kids. He's been working the same job for 40 years. He's got a pension coming. He's been, he's been looking at this little place up on the Mediterranean. It's got like a retirement community not far from the beach. Maybe it's not the most exciting life, but it's stable. It's predictable. And all of a sudden, Moses catches glimpse of something strange. He catches glimpse of a bush on fire, and that bush is not burning up. See, Moses has been doing this, Moses has been doing this work long enough that he knows that bushes aren't supposed to catch on fire and then keep burning. He knows that's not normal, so he, so he goes over and checks it out. You all know that expression, curiosity killed the cat? I don't think Moses knew that expression. But if he had, I've got to think that at some point during this exchange with God, this comes to his mind, because because for the rest of, we're not going to get to get into everyone, but the rest of this exchange, Moses is basically trying to back himself out of what he got himself into. But for now, he's drawn in to the side of the bush on fire. Fire is a, is a frequent sign in exodus of God's presence. Why is that? Think about this. Fire draws you in. Like if you're out, if, if you're out camping and, you know, uh, there's a fire happening, where's everybody? Everybody's always around the fire. They're always circled around the fire because uh, they, they can see the flames. You can, you can feel the warmth radiating off, radiating off it. You can, you can hear the crackling. The fire has a way of engaging all your senses. You can even smell the smoke. It's like a magnet. Fire is also potent and dangerous. This summer, uh, when we were on sabbatical in southern Colorado, we were driving over a mountain pass and we into the San Luis Valley, and we started to see just a, a massive hillside, all blackened and charred, uh, burned, trees and uh, fire had passed through there. And I got to our, 
our motel, and I was talking to the, the hotel owner, and he said, yeah, that was the, the Spring Creek fire. It was one of the largest fires in, in Colorado history. And he told me, he said, you know, that week before the fire, I was out, I, I saw this guy in his backyard burning trash. And I, and I think he told me, I told the guy, you should not be doing that. There was a burn, burn, burn ban. Guy should not have been burning trash. Well, a few days later, fire, you know, light starts out his little burn pile, spreads. Uh, two and a half months later, when that fire is finally contained, 100,000 acres are burned down, 140 structure. Fire is potent. Fire is dangerous, and fire is not easily controlled. And the fire that Moses sees in this bush, it's, it's as I said, different because it's not consuming the bush. It's the, 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 the fire's natural property is, is somehow temporarily suspended. And we'll see this again and again in the book of Exodus. You know, water's part, uh, they, they turn to blood, there's gnats and flies that go on the attack. The, the God we see here is the God who stands over creation. And a voice then calls out to Moses from within the burning bush, drawing him in until all of a sudden, stop. Stay right there. Don't come a step closer. Take off your sandals. You're standing on holy ground. This ground is not made holy because there's something in the property of the soil. It's made holy because God himself is there. And I want you to notice, because we're going to see this again and again, there's this push and there's a pull. Okay, Moses is drawn into the fire, and all of a sudden he's stopped. As Christopher Wright puts it, God's presence and holiness seem like the opposite poles of a magnet working together. Think about it, you've all probably worked with magnets before. Magnets, uh, I mean, if nothing else, you have your fridge, you have a little magnet, and what, what happens as you get closer to the fridge, you know, that fridge begins to exert power, and it pulls that magnet in until it sticks, right? But if you've ever had like, um, like those horseshoe magnets where you can flip the poles around, you can do something different. Depending on where the poles are, those magnets can actually exert force in the other way, right? So they can pull in, and if they're flipped, they can push out. And I want you to see there's this push and there's a pull happening between God and Moses. Come close, but keep a distance. And by the time Moses realizes what he's been drawn into, uh, by the time he realizes this is the God of his ancestors, Moses hides his face and he's afraid. And this is a fairly common reaction in the Bible when all of a sudden a person realizes they're in the presence of God. Fear. And not just in the Old Testament. I think sometimes we kind of think about, well, yeah, okay, this is the God of the Old Testament. This is a God so holy we can't draw near. This is the God of fire and fear. That's not Jesus. That's why I like Jesus. But think about this for a second. Do you remember uh, in the Gospel of Mark, there's a story that, that you know, the disciples are out on the Sea of Galilee. And there's a big storm. It's starting to kill the disciples. Jesus calms the storm. Do you remember how the disciples reacted? I, I'm just always so fascinated by this. They're terrified. They're not terrified that they almost died. They're terrified by what Jesus just did. They are terrified that they're in the presence of someone who controls nature. And they say, who is this? Even the wind and waves obey him. Or, or another, take another story from Luke's gospel. Disciples are out fishing in the boat. They've been fishing all night. Uh, Jesus tells them, hey, throw your nets uh, out in the deep water. They catch so many fish, the boats begin to sink. Okay, nature is again under control. Peter runs over to Jesus, gives him a fist bump and says, that was awesome, Jesus. I want to do that every day so I can be a rich man. That's not what happened. Peter falls to the ground and says, go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. You see the push and the pull? 
He's being pulled into Jesus. And as soon as he encounters Jesus, there's a push, go away from me. There's fire. And the only thing Peter wants to do when he realizes he's in the presence of fire is go away from me. There's a push and there's a pull. See, when people begin to understand in whose presence they stand, there is this sense of holy awe that comes over them. People naturally feel small in the presence of God. They want to hide their faces like Moses. They are fearful that the fire will consume them that they have encountered. Or in the case of of Peter, he encounters a fire, but the, the The fire that Peter encounters, it burns. It burns away pretenses. It burns away pride. It burns away all the the fluff on the outside and exposes what's inside. It exposes the bones, the structure. And when that happens to Peter, when Peter sees himself as he truly is, he just wants to stop and say, go away from me. See, (laughs) the real God is not a life coach who, who basically, and I, you know, Seriously, I think we've, we've gotten somehow this notion that God is a basically kind of like a life coach who, who basically affirms everything you do and, and kind of want to give, wants to give you a little bit of advice on how you can improve. When you encounter the real God of the Bible, you encounter fire. Fire that burns away the illusions about ourselves. Fire that burns away notions that we are self-reliant. Fire that, that, that burns away ideas that we're, we're really just basically good and nice people because it exposes our brokenness and our smallness. And Moses gets it. Moses has an accurate view of his smallness because when he encounters God in the burning bush, when God gives him the instruction to go to the Israelites, he says, who am I? Like, who am I to do this? Like, you know who I am. I'm 80 years old. I- I've spent 40 years as a shepherd in the desert. And you want me to go to the world superpower, world superpower and free a people who have been enslaved for hundreds of years. There is zero chance of that happening. What does God say? No, Moses, you can do this. Like, I'm going to give you some encouragement. I'm gonna give- you got the chops to do this, Moses. Go out and change the world. You can do it. No, God doesn't say it. God says, I'll be with you. I love this. Moses says, like, who am I? And God's basic response is, who am I? You see that? What's important in this story is not who Moses is, it's who God is. The success of the deliverance of the Israelites from slavery is not going to depend on Moses. It's going to depend on God. You and I, we need this God. We need a God as we approach that God who says, stop, take off your sandals, don't come any closer. You are on holy ground. You, need, you and I need a God as we approach, we can feel the force. We can feel it push us away. Because you need to recognize the holy awe you stand in front of. You will instinctively draw back and you will hide your face. And you need that God and I need that God because that God has the power to confront the pharaohs in our world. And that God has the power to confront the pharaohs in ourselves. Because on our own, we got no chance. We need a God of holy awe and fire because that is the only God that has the power to save us. Okay. Second one, God is relational. Because somebody out there might be thinking, okay, God of fire, holy God, can't draw near. I know that God. That is my image of God. I've had that image since I was a little kid, and that's my problem. Because the image of God is always pushing me away. 
The image I have of God in my head is always telling me, is all push and no pull and saying, don't get near me. But just like, okay, listen to this. Just like the image of a God who's part life coach, part therapist, part buddy, if, if we have a God, image of a God in our minds who is all push and all just doesn't want to be near us, that is a distorted image of God too. And we start to see this in a name. This is what's so fascinating in this passage. We begin to see who God is through a name. Uh, after God tells Moses he's going to rescue the Israelites, Moses begins to engage in this long series of questions and, and objections. And you know, like I said, Moses is basically trying to get out of this commission. I should have just walked. I, should have just kept, I saw that bush. I should have just kept walking. I should have just kept walking. We've already talked about one of these. Moses says, who am I? Uh, after that, he, he turns to another clarifying question. And Moses says, like, let's just suppose hypothetically, I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me. What do I do if they ask me, what is his name? This God who sent you, what's his name? Now, as, I, as I've, I've said, a name in the Bible means a lot more than a label. A name stands for the character, their honor, their power. Uh, let me give you an example. I've by now, sat down with many, many of you, many families in our congregation after someone has, they love has died. And I will, um, I will do that. I, I want to, to hear about their person, about who they are. And so I'll ask, you know, tell me about your dad. Tell me about your mom. Tell me about your spouse. And when I'm asking that question, I'm not asking for a label. I, I, I know their name. I know what they were called. I'm trying to say to the family, I didn't know that person like you. Help me understand who they were. Help me understand their character. Help me understand their personality. And that's, I think that's closer to what Moses is asking God. Help me understand who you are. Because you're sending me to Israel, um, you're sending me to Egypt to liberate the Israelites. They're going to say, who is this God? Who, does this God have the power to even do this? And, and Moses... It's totally understandable he's asking this question because remember, remember the last time Moses tried to swoop in and be the hero? It didn't go too well. They're like, who are you? So Moses, understandably, is like, I'm going to have to go back to these people who rejected me once and say, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm here to liberate you. And they're going to say, what? Who's behind you? What is this God? And then God says, we had this kind of extremely important moment in Scripture where God says uh, to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God reveals his personal name uh, to Moses, which is I am. And let's be honest, it's like that name is super confusing. Like what does I am mean? It'd be like, um, it's like Moses asks for a proper noun and he ends up getting a verb in return. It'd be like if you asked me my name, I said, instead of saying Matthew, I just said to be. Like you would say, I don't understand what you're talking about. It's put like, it's puzzling in English and it's puzzling in Hebrew. And people way smarter than I have spent a lot of time trying to figure out what this name means. And I read a number of commentaries and tried to figure out, I'll be honest with you, I'm still pretty puzzled. But here's the most helpful, like succinct explanation that I saw of what this name means. One person wrote, wherever God is being God, God will be the kind of God God is. In other words, God is totally reliable. Like sometimes you'll hear a person maybe... Uh, They'll try to defend themselves by saying, you know, I did this thing and I'm not proud of that, but that's not who I am. That, that thing that I did, that's, that, that does not reflect who I really am. That was out of my character. You will never hear God say that because that never happens with God. 
God is not a capricious God. God is consistent. God is reliable. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob, meaning the God of the past, is the same as the God of the present, is the same as the God of the future. And there's a whole lot more I could say about this, but as we go through Exodus, God will actually begin to reveal more of what the meaning uh, that, that stands behind that name. But for now, I want you to, to recognize that God has a name. Did you know that God had a name? Or did you think God's name was God? If you did, that would be completely understandable. Because if your Bible is like mine, even though the personal name of God shows up over 6,000 times in the Old Testament, you never see it. Okay? So hang with me. I'm going to do just like a two-minute theology. And I think there'll be a payoff, but hang with me here. In Hebrew, the name that God reveals to Moses here in the mountain looks like this. You can put up the first slide. So that's, that's written in Hebrew. It's four letters, Y-H-W-H, okay? Now, the thing about written Hebrew is it doesn't, it doesn't have vowels. So there's a, there's a sound of a vowel there, but when you read it, you're, you don't see the vowels. And so we actually, people don't even know 100% sure how this, this, these four letters are pronounced. But most people think it's pronounced like this. You can go on to the next slide. You're probably familiar with this. Okay, Yahweh. So that, if you add in the vowels, and I could say a lot more about this, but I'm not going to do it, but if you add in the vowels, it probably would have been sounded and has been spelled like this, Yahweh. Okay, so that is the personal name of God. That's the name that shows up over 6,000 times in our Bibles. But you don't see it. You never see it. Because whenever, and, and notice that, those of you reading the Old Testament, you'll start to see this now. Like, watch out, because you'll see it written like this, the next slide you'll see it written like this, Lord, okay? So every time you see, um, you know, whenever you see Lord in all caps, um, like it's not because it's not like your excitable friend who just can't help themselves in a text. It's, everybody has one of those, right? It's all caps. No, when you see Lord in all caps, you're seeing a substitute for the name Yahweh, okay? So every, so every time you see, now if you see Lord in, in lowercase, it's not a substitute. But when you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, you know in your mind that actually in the Hebrew is Yahweh, okay? Now, another good question is why would they do that? Why would the, in our English translations, why would they do that? Why don't they just write Yahweh? Well, to be brief, you can take that down. Thanks, Ron. To be brief, uh, at some point in Israel's history, the personal name of God, Yahweh, was considered too holy to speak out loud. So people were afraid of taking the name in vain. They were so afraid of taking the name, they just voided it completely. So they started calling God uh, names like the name, or more commonly, they would say Adonai, which means Lord. And Adonai, that Lord was just a common word that you would use like a master-servant relationship, okay? So most English translations, they adopted this, this habit. Instead of writing out Yahweh, the personal divine name of God, they put in our Bibles, Lord in all caps, and again, there's a lot more I can say about this. If you want to dive deeper, Google Tetragrammaton and, and go from there. Um, it's, it's interesting, but there's a lot there. But here's, for our purposes today, here's what I want you to see. God is a person. As Comer writes, that doesn't mean that, that God is, is male or female, but, but by person, he's a relational being. Like God is not an impersonal energy force. He's a relational being that wants to relate to people like you and to people like me. God wants to know and be known. 
God doesn't just want um, you and I to know a bunch of facts about God. I don't remember where I heard this, but one time I heard someone say, you know, like if you know everything about a person, but you don't know them, that's, that's like what a stalker does, okay? That's, that's not our relationship with God, to just know a bunch of facts about God, but not God. God wants to be known and God wants to know us. And I think what we, we, that comes out so clearly in this passage, in this exchange with Moses, because God, God first gives Moses his name. He doesn't give him a title. He gives him a name, which says a lot. Think about an elementary school. I, I, I think this is the, still the camp. This is when I was in elementary school. Think about like when you like heard someone call your teacher by their first name. <laughs> We've got a number of teachers here. Like something feels real. I felt really uncomfortable when I did that. Like Mrs. Fusen is not like Anne. Mrs. Fusen is Mrs. Fusen. Like this, this, she's a teacher. I don't think she's a real person. Like who goes out to eat and goes to movies and stuff. Like that was my mind as a kid. Like who is this that has a first name named Anne? And just hearing her name kind of opens things up. Like if you go, like, I don't know, Joan Elizabeth would be able to speak to this more, but oftentimes, like, when I would run into my teacher years later, like, I couldn't get myself to say their first name. Like, they would have to say, like, you know, you can call me so-and-so, the name. Does that give you, like, okay, that's your teacher. That's your elementary teacher. Imagine applying that to God. Do you see why we're just a little bit nervous, maybe, to use this name? And yet, God reveals God's name. God wants to be known. God wants to know. Moses' encounter with Yahweh begins with fire and fear, but then it shifts to dialogue. So five times in this passage, uh, Moses, he either raises a question or just flat out objects to this commissioning uh, that he's getting to go to the Israelites. He, he starts out with these questions of clarification. You know, who am I? Uh, what do I say? Uh, what do I do if they don't believe me or listen to me? And each time, Yahweh engages with Moses, okay? You're, you're nervous about going there by yourself. You know what? You're not gonna go along. I'm going with you. My presence is going with you. You need a sign? Okay, here, throw your staff on the ground. It's gonna turn into a snake. Put your hand in your coat. It's gonna become white leprous, okay? As the, as the dialogue continues, Moses seems to be getting more and more alarmed. He seems to, his, his, his questions of clarification just go out to flat out objections. And he finally says like, you know, part, I, I, don't, I can't speak. I'm slow of speech and tongues. Okay, again, God is like, Yahweh is like, okay, we can, we can work with this. I can speak through you. I'll give you the words. And finally, Moses just says like, just, just send somebody else. And we read, we read that Yahweh's anger burned against Moses. And we think, well, there you go. There he is, the Yahweh of, of fire and anger coming at Moses. But look what he does. He says, well, what about your brother Aaron? He can speak well. He can speak to the people for you. Yeah, yeah, Yahweh's a little frustrated at this point. Five objections into the conversation. But he's working with Moses. Yahweh is incredibly impatient, incredibly patient with Moses. Not only does, does Yahweh patiently listen to the objections, he seems to accommodate his concerns. And this exchange, uh, if, if you haven't read the whole passage, go back and read it. It begins with fire and fear, but then it ends with, with God basically saying to Moses, hey, don't forget your staff. You're going to need that. Like it sounds like something I would say to my kids as they're walking out of the door. Maybe you would say to your spouse, hey, don't forget your jacket. You're going to need your jacket. 
And it can be easy to miss how stunning this is. Moses has come face to face with the most powerful being in the universe, which at first he fears may obliterate him, ends up having a conversation on a mountain like they're friends. In fact, later on in Exodus, we'll read that. Like Yahweh will speak to to, to Moses face to face like one speaks to a friend. What's Moses doing here? He's praying. What do you mean he's praying? He's not bowing his head. He's talking to God. Isn't that what prayer is? Isn't, Isn't prayer a conversation, a back and forth with God? What's probably so stunning to us as we think about this is that, well, okay, well, Moses talks to God, but what about us? God patiently listens to Moses and God even kind of accommodates some of Moses' concerns, but what about us? I think this is such a fascinating picture of the way Yahweh wants to relate to Yahweh's creation. Because let's be clear here. Yahweh does not need Moses to go deal with Pharaoh. I'm pretty sure Yahweh can handle Pharaoh on his own. And yet Yahweh chooses to collaborate with Moses. And I think that has massive implications for our personal lives. Because when we talk to God, when we pray to God like Moses is praying here, it makes a difference. It changes things. As Dallas Lord says, God's response to our prayers is not a charade. He does not pretend that he is answering our prayer when he's only doing what he was going to do anyway. Our requests really do make a difference in what God does or does not do. Yes, a big part of prayer is it changes us. That's true. But if, you, if you're going to have a vibrant prayer life, it's going to be hard to have that if you don't think prayer makes any difference. If you think that God is just kind of humoring you and will listen to your prayers, but really God's not going to do anything about them. I think we see in this exchange that prayer changes things. As hard as that may be to understand and as complicated a questions as that might bring up, we have to see in this passage that prayer changes things. Do, do you see the push and pull here? The God of fire and holiness who, who pushes us away is also the God who says, let's talk, let's collaborate, let's work together. Do you have that God in your mind? As you pray this week, as followers and as followers of Jesus, we are called to pray. That is just fundamental to who we are as followers. I encourage you to do two things. One, I encourage you to take some time in silence and, and say what Moses is saying and say, what are you like? Not, not what do I think you're like or what do I want you to be like, but reveal yourself to me. I want to know who you are. And I said, as I said, that can be exhilarating and it can be kind of scary. But I strongly encourage you, just take some time this week, ask God to reveal God's self to you and just listen. But secondly, this is just as important. I want you to take the edit button off your prayer life. I want you to do something that I know I personally struggle to do and speak freely to God like Moses does. And that can also feel a little bit scary. But look at Moses. There's not a lot of editing going on. Moses is speaking frankly to God. He's speaking frankly to God about his concerns, about his fears, about his desires. And and, and I think we need to recognize God is not as scared of our honesty as we are. We are often scared to speak honestly to God. God is not afraid of that. And I think we see that so clearly in this passage. We see that so clearly in the Psalms. Those of you who are reading the Psalms, watch how the Psalmists speak to God. It will 
probably make you uncomfortable at times. God has a name, Yahweh. And Yahweh wants to know and be known. How do we know that for sure? How do we know that that Yahweh doesn't want to just know Moses and be friends with Moses and not be friends with us? Because one day Yahweh will appear again. But this time not at a burning bush, but in flesh and bone. This time not to draw one man to him, but all men and women to him. And if you don't understand how totally other if you don't have a holy sense of awe of Yahweh, you are not going to get how shocking that is that Yahweh entered his creation. See, when Yahweh comes again in the person of Jesus, Yahweh will again speak the name I am in the garden. And there will be such power in those words that the people who hear them will draw back and fall on the ground. Do you see the push? It's still there in Jesus. The power is undiminished. The fire is there but you got to see the pull too. Because in the flesh of Jesus, sandals and dirty feet will again come into the holy presence of Yahweh and Yahweh will again tell the person to take off your sandals, but this time Yahweh will stoop down and wash the person's feet. Do you see the pull? Are you stunned by the pull? Are you overwhelmed by the pull? Are you overwhelmed by the sight of Yahweh and the person of Jesus stooping down to wash feet. The friendship is there. See, if you don't understand the push, you're never going to understand the pull. If you don't appreciate the push, you're never going to appreciate the pull. If you don't understand your own brokenness, you'll never understand the mercy of God and how strong that pull is. That God draws us in. That God wants to be in relationship with us. That God wants to know us and be known. You need an image of your mind that somehow holds together fire and friendship, holy awe and a personal name. Let's pray. God of our ancestors, God of the present and God of the future, the great I am, show us who you are. Reveal yourself to us. Cast down and destroy the false images we have created of you as individuals, as a congregation. Forgive us for the way we have crafted you into our own image. We want to be a people, a congregation who are shaped and molded by you. Give us a sense of holy awe and holy friendship. Let it overwhelm us with love and wonder. And let let it transform us into people that you have called us to be. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.